Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. In 2019, Dan Cook is heading out for his first full national tour in six years, and he's calling it his Tell It Like It Is tour, playing venues such as the Wang Theater in his hometown of Boston and Radio City Music Hall in New York City. How is it now for Dan Cook? Cook sat down with me in the Comedy Store's podcast studio this month to talk through his comedy and personal demons, as well as to go back with me to his historic and pioneering rise through social media in the mid-2000s, culminating in HBO specials, double platinum records, selling out Madison Square Garden, hosting Saturday Night Live twice, and starring in major motion pictures. He was the comedy star of the late 2000s. Dean Cook has been through a lot since then and come out the other side, and he's ready to talk all about it. So let's get to it! So, Dane Cook, it has been a while. This is the first time we sat with microphones. Usually, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Before we start, I just want to do a sound. Yeah. Because sometimes I hate wearing these. Do you need me to wear these? Do I have to wear them? You don't have to. Uh, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. You don't have to wear them. I'm going to go without them. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be fine. Yeah, sometimes it, it's weird. I feel like I'm not in the conversation because I'm like, hey, I'm cutting a rap album. Awesome. Why haven't you cut a rap album? <laughs> Donald Glover has a rap album. Jay Farrow has a rap album. I'm not going to lie. I did actually write a lot of rap. And Wait, when? Uh, I, I have, in the last month no. or in 1994? <laughs> no, I was, I was uh, writing stuff in like 96, 97, 98. Mm-hmm. I grew up, I loved Beastie Boys. I, I, just, I loved all kinds of music. And I started writing, uh, I started writing rap music. And I found it recently, and oh my goodness. If you want to cringe, read some of these. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not doing any of it right now. No, that's fine. So your your new tour is called Tell It Like It Is. Yeah. Which is one of those phrases, uh, it's not triggering, but it's it's definitely a phrase that people can take in multiple ways. Okay, is it? Yeah, because, <laughs> well, especially in, in this era. Okay. Where we have a president who tells it like it is. Okay. Or at least says. I certainly wasn't, uh. Says he tells it. No, 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 I'm not trying to say that. But, but it, but it made me realize that when people say tell it like it is, sometimes people, if you're an audience member, they're just saying, he's saying what I want to say. Right. That's, and they go, well, that guy just tells it like it is. They go, no, he just says what you want to hear. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. But for you, what does it mean? For me, it was really more about the structure of what I've always wanted my comedy to be, which, uh, and, and we've chronicled this as, you know, as I've had my uh, fortunate evolution in, mm-hmm. in stand up to almost 30 years uh, next year. And it was like when I was doing physical comedy. Uh, I, I was saying to somebody the other day, they said, was the energy a, a, a put on? I said, 0% put on. The energy was authentic because I was such a nervous introvert when I was a kid that being alive on stage was truly like this buoyant, light, um, you know, I was just, I was uh, exuberant on stage. But knew even early on that the comics that I loved 
could perform, but they could write. Mm-hmm. And it took a lot of years and a lot of albums and a lot of ups and downs to finally come to a place. And it really only started to congeal about five or six years ago to where I could be uh, observational and introspective. And once I reached that, mm-hmm. it was it was um, it was a, a, a new uh, plateau in, in, in freedom to use all the tools from everything that I had learned in my stand up, cultivated into an act now that speaks to who I am, how I receive things, and if if it's observational, it's more from the point of view of not like, hey, this is funny to all of us, but this mm-hmm. is what's funny to me, and then therefore, hopefully, we'll translate. But how much of that also is being in your mid-40s versus late teens, just not having... The, I think my, my the, therapist the, said I'm the, still the, in my late teens. The, <laughs> <laughs> my therapist is like, when you're in show business, he's, a, he's like a show business therapist. Mm-hmm. He worked with like, I don't want to name names, but he's worked with a lot of people. And he, yeah, don't name Jeff your therapist. And, well, you know how I found out? I Googled him. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't tell me directly. Okay. Um, but I was talking to him and he's like, listen, you know, I, he worked with a lot of entertainers, um, top tier entertainers. He's like, you're in a bubble. You're in a bubble. He goes, when did you become a professional comedian making money for stand up comedy? I was like, 94. And he's like, yeah, you've, you're, you're not a human being for like the last 15, 18 years. Yeah, you still feel things and see things in a way. But he goes, you're, because you, you, I was like, yeah, I don't feel whatever 46 is supposed to feel like. He's like, because you're still probably 19 on stage somewhere in your mind. And I think that does say a lot of why performers that we know that hit 90 and are still performing have a a boyishness Mm -hmm. and a mischief. I think that's part of it. It's just that uh, love of performance. I was just talking with Henry Rollins about that. I mean, he's 57, but he was talking about why do Mick and Keith still get up there on stage? I mean, they don't need the money. They don't need the experience of performing in an arena or stadium because they performed in all of them. Okay, it's I, it's the it's that that special that joy of being on stage. I, that- I think it's something else as well. I think it's the joy of being on stage, but I also think it's an understand. And this just occurred to me rather recently. Um, doing, sh- you know, being back out on the road and doing like kind of test shows last year to see where am I at in the zeitgeist? How do I? Where are you in the zeitgeist? We'll get to that. It's, it's, <laughs> but, but the Keith in, in, uh, Mick thing is really fascinating because what, what I've accomplished, uh, and again, through a lot of, um, you know, road traveling years mm-hmm. is a pedigree. And an ability to bring people a performance that's at a higher level because of all the facets that I can now bring into my stand-up. And having grown up with not only a generation of my comedy fans, but there's always new people coming in, a a new generation of fans. And I think that maybe – I can't speak for those guys in the Rolling Stones, but I know for me – it's always I'm as excited to see the next person coming up and see how they cultivate it and how they do it differently. But there's something to be said for seeing a seasoned performer who's been out there and doing it for gosh knows how long. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what's exciting now. Uh, and that's what I think is propelling me through not only this tour, but specials and things that are to come. So recently Facebook had a profile picture challenge and you were supposed to post your – your most recent picture and then your first picture. So when I went back and looked at what were my earliest profile pictures, okay. not the first one, but the first two were both pictures that were taken by Boston Herald photographers while I was on, on the job. The first okay. one was me uh, doing a first person with uh, the Harlem Globetrotters. Right. 
Just, that was just a goofy assignment that I got. The second one was me interviewing you in the dressing room of Boston Garden oh, right wow. before you're about to go on stage for Vicious Circle. Oh, man. Okay. And, you know, you talk about how I, we've been, I've been documenting your evolution. <laughs> it's just like... Or de or de evolution as we age. Can we can we go back to that moment because Oh please, can we? <laughs> well HBO does play Vicious Circle every once in a while. They do, they do. But that well one the the idea that you were granting an interview before taping two like back to back sets in, before twenty thousand people. Now I, I just look at it and go, How are you in a frame of mind to do that? But two, like what what was that moment in your life like? Like Bill Blumenreich gave you a moped, I believe. That's right, with the super finger on it. <laughs> um, I think I saw all sorts of celebrities. Some of them I couldn't understand. I, I saw Glenn, Glenn Close. Close. Yeah, she's a big comedy fan. But so <laughs> what was that moment in your life like for you when you go back to 2006? Sure. It was, um, it was a surreal moment of living in a dream that had come to fruition. Um, remembering hearing stories about Steve Martin in Madison Square Garden from my sister Kelly, who had gone to his show. Her enthusiasm was something that like, I remember how she was talking about the show. I knew I wanted to be a comedian. And I started projecting this idea that I could entertain the masses, uh, how and, and where and how I would accomplish that, that was going to be a whole different set of circumstances. But at that point, just the dreaming of being on SNL, uh, playing massive venues, then watching Dice uh, have his amazing growth and thinking to myself, you can do it. You can do it with jokes. You can actually do it with jokes and ideas. And, and I just, uh, when I was sitting backstage at the Boston Garden, that was the first time that I played the round. I, that's the first time I played an arena mm -hmm. and in the round. I probably did some other large scale shows. I think Penn State before that was one of my biggest at like 13,000. Was that one of the tourgasm? That was one of, yeah. And that was really what told me, oh, okay, I think this is, I think I can do this. Mm -hmm. I think I can take this to the next tier. Um, and so to sit with you and to celebrate it, I think a little part of it was like, I just wanted to put it all in a time capsule because as a student of, um, of careers, especially in comedy, it's, it's, uh, people are fickle and, and things come in and out of vogue. And I was aware of that, uh, probably a little scared of that as well because it was like, oh, I want to have a longevity thing. But I might not. So this, I this might to, be it. This might, you know, yeah. And and by the way, it's like to sit with the Boston Herald as a kid from Boston who came up reading it and then seeing all the local comedy club listings and guys that I wanted to emulate. Like when that was asked, I was I was in many ways the show was I was ready for mm -hmm. the enthusiasm from people like yourself to actually want to talk and get to know somebody who felt very insignificant in the world for a lot of years was the gift that comedy gave me. People actually want to approach me. They want to know me. They're, 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 I'm interesting. Um, and that grew on me as time went on. So that period to me is, uh, is one that there was before the things that unfortunately came in after that in life, you know, has its tsunami moments. Mm -hmm. There was a good period of maybe about five years where it was just an incredible high that I was on. But, you know, mentioning Steve Martin, you know, in his book, Born Standing Up, he talks about 
playing the garden in these arenas as the moment that made him realize he needed to get out of stand up. Right. Whereas you were dreaming. Right, of but that. You, I read the book too. I mean, I, I've had a conversation with Mr. Steve Martin. I was mm-hmm. fortunate enough, but I, I feel like if I was going to be like a, a, a couch therapist, I would say a lot of. He had a lot of issues with his dad in, in, in fame growing up. And I think it probably if that goes unchecked, uh, which is why I wanted to get into my own therapy, because I, d- I wanted to be prepared for, A, the next success and the next failure. Um, and so I look at his trajectory and I read that book and I understand it. Um, and I feel that a lot of the stories in there I can I can relate to. The, the steps taken mm-hmm. to try to build up to something like that. Uh, when he says he was on stage and he could feel, uh, you know, from the tips of his fingers to the bottom of his feet, everything was connected in, in part of the performance, every little nuance. I, I, I agree. I, that jumped right off the pages at me when he said that he was unhappy and just going back to his hotel room and doing crosswords. I, that didn't speak to me at all. I didn't, I didn't understand that. I didn't, uh, I didn't, know where or why would cause somebody to feel that way. I would go back to my hotel after I'd be on MySpace, I'd be on websites and I'd be ingratiating myself and trying to learn. And, um, so there was never a time when I was playing, I did a hundred arenas in a row. And then after I was done with that, I remember feeling like, well, I don't want to keep trying to repeat this. It's not about trying to do this bigger, bigger, bigger. I, I did it. I said, now it's trying to connect it's connecting in other because forms it's hard of, to connect when you've got twenty thousand people. Well, it's an event. I talked yeah. to Sebastian uh, recently because he did oh, his he Madison did, Square. Yeah, yeah and I, it, you know, it's an event. It's an event, and so therefore, it, uh, you know, kind of like Cirque du Soleil, you're in there, like, okay, I got to be, I got to be at my, you know, sharpest, so that there's no mistakes here, um, and that takes a little bit away from performers and performance that is um, uh, organic in terms of how we have a conversation with the crowd. Yeah. You're doing the show, you're giving everything you got, and you're going to walk off stage sweating and be like, wow, okay, made it through, did it. Uh, when you do a theater show, the pacing, everything can be a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, thoughtful and uh, there's more subtlety. So I appreciate you know any size venue, you know if it's a big big one, it's an event. If it's a theater or a club, then it's um, it's a place to really have a have a give and take with an audience. Now I know that you had a give and take relationship with your dad too. Sure, um, but not as um, uh, coarse. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I grew up as a, an, I'm an adult child. I'm an alcoholic. So I knew all the Al-Anon stuff and dealing with my dad who drank and unfortunately became just impossible to, to be under the same roof with, um, just a lot of uncomfort and chaos in the house because you didn't know what, uh, dad you're going to get. So I understood that and I was angry at him for a lot of years because of what he put the family through. But we fortunately found a great place to uh, bond and, and there was uh, not to get so like, you know, violins, but we had a we had a real release of pain and, and, and anger and there was forgiveness. And I got to have a nice chunk of time with him before he uh, how, passed. But how much, you know, as a as a teenager, how much did the the chaotic home life and the feeling that you mentioned of feeling insignificant or, yeah. or overlooked, how much did comedy give you that release or, or that that escape? We're like, oh, this 
this can solve that problem? Well, at first it was just viewing it and seeing shows and like SNL or watching, uh, you know, I'd, I'd watch John Ritter on Three's Company. I just, I loved, I loved people that were committed. Um, so I happen to like a lot of the guys that, you know, the Steve Martin or the Martin Short and mm-hmm. guys like that. Um, and then as, and so it was, it was a bit of a, a way to protect myself, you know, humor and my mom loved to laugh and, and my dad actually did have a great sense of humor. Uh, it just, you know, you didn't know exactly when it was gonna, you know, be in the household. So I knew comedy was a safe haven. I knew comedy was a release and a relief. And then when I tried it, when I thought, you know, want to see if I can, you know, get up there and, and try my hand at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time I ever did it, I immediately felt, um, I didn't feel encumbered at all. I didn't feel something happens when I perform. It still happens to this day. Moment I step on stage, all that heaviness is just gone. And uh, and so once I once I found that, I was like, oh, this is what I want to you know dedicate my time to learning this craft. And that's something that that bonds you to all comedians. Yeah, everybody has that experience. And yeah, goes, the, oh. gr- the great thing about comedians is as interestingly complex and different and fragile and all the things that go with it we we all can share in where we're a community is we all know the sacrifice of what it takes to take the gamble on yourself doing this because it's definitely not guaranteed there's nobody waiting there to give you a shot you got to really make it on your own and you also have to do that in a climate that you're not sure exactly what the era of comedy. I've seen a lot of eras. I've seen political eras. I've seen, um, you know, just straight up, you know, physical, you know, absurdity. We've seen so many different incarnations of, you know, what is in vogue again right. with stand up comedy. So I was fortunate enough to, to lock into something in Boston that was, uh, going to work for me. When did you first start, uh, loving technology? Uh, I think I had my first Commodore 64 ripped apart and was studying the insides and uh, I was soldering things when Uh I was a kid and my dad had like a work uh, bench downstairs and I was always trying to figure out um, how to how to break something and fix something how to break a watch and put it back together or Uh an Atari joystick or whatever it was Um, and so when I was in high school I switched to a vocational school called Minuteman Tech in Lexington. Okay. And you could go there and learn some kind of trade. So I went there for a year and studied um, graphic design. So I was working with like the first version of Photoshop, basically, and all that stuff. Um, and then I switched to Arlington High School to to do drama for my junior and senior year. But that one year of learning uh, the programming on the computer helped me later with everything from HTML codes to to how to make my own flyers that are dynamic and yeah i was just yeah. gonna ask i you know i was looking through I used to go to the burlington mall with flyers i printed out myself a thousand flyers and i'd go and i'd walk around the parking lot and i'd put a uh, a, a, an ad a flyer for myself playing for, at the kowloon i was or gonna say for a specific show or just yeah, for yeah. you i'm at the kowloon da, 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 like it just and i would go up every couple of weeks to the burlington mall and i would i would paper the the parking lot why there? Did you figure... Because I wanted would... to hang out at the mall. <laughs> All the girls were at the mall. Okay, it wasn't like a demographic thing going, okay, people from Burlington <laughs> love to drive to Saugus. No, it was just basically me wanting to go, hang out at this particular mall with my mm-hmm. friends, but also I had the bug early of... Um, 
can I, you know, you got to generate, uh, you got to get enthusiasm. If you want to get elected, you got to shake hands of the people in the communities. And so I, I. So you looked at comedy not just as a business, but as like. A campaign, um, I, a branding campaign. I wouldn't. If you will. I wouldn't say I thought of it like that at the time. That sounds great to in in retrospect say now. But I thought of it like okay. I thought of it like this. I didn't think people would like me just because I was a comedian because I didn't like myself when I was younger, mm-hmm. and I didn't have friends. I didn't have a lot of people that were trying to like me or get to know me. It was very, very challenging for me, and I went through you know amazing uh, bouts of anxiety and panic attacks, and it just, you name it, and, and I had a slew of um, you know phobias that uh, kept me from feeling uh, confident. Also, probably in the shadow of my dad, who was an athlete, had the same build. And a broadcaster, too, right? Did broadcast. Yeah, mm-hmm. did color commentary and all that. But athletic, broad shoulders, just like me. I'm his only son. Here I come along. I don't want to get hit. I don't want to box. I don't want to do any of that stuff. I want to do West Side Story, and I want to put on a bedazzled jacket and sing and dance. And it was like I probably even felt a little bit... Um, uh, I lowered my own value because I was like, oh, I'm not like, I guess, like an alpha man's man. Right. So my idea was, oh, if I want people to like my comedy, then they have to know me and like me. So I looked at it a, a bit like a campaign, but more like a, I needed a, a, to do like this meet and greet to get people to want to come to the show. Okay. When was the first time you actually did a meet and greet? The first time I did a meet and greet was... I think I started hanging – okay, so when I was in New York and we were doing like the Comedy Cellar and the Boston Comedy Club, mm-hmm. I was starting to play uh, Stand Up New York for Lucian Holt and all those okay. guys. And I did something that was, I guess at the time, considered to be uh, unusual, which was I waited till the end of the show for the crowd to let out. A lot of comics gave me grief about this because it was like, that's not what we do. We don't, you know, we don't skulk around. We skulk right. around in the corner. We're not <laughs> pandering and shaking hands. But I, I, I love that. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a confidence builder. And people come out and I learned about my comedy. People would say, I love that thing about da da da. And I was getting firsthand feedback. Focus group. Yeah. Yeah. Focus group. That's yeah. exactly it. And not everybody liked it. And that was even better because it was like, okay, I know more people are always going to not like you than like you. So how do I hone into the people that are on my level? Okay. Um, so doing the club stuff. And then finally, when I started doing colleges, I did a couple of meet and greets like university, of Rhode Island, university, of New Hampshire. And I, I didn't have anything to do after I was just like, I'm just, what am I going to go be? I, I, I had like, I have literal fear of abandonment issues of being alone. I don't want to go back to some crappy motel room and just be alone and scared and ruminating. So I want to stay here. I want to. I want to continue to uh, fe- feel a feeling of want and uh, importance because I didn't have that at that time in my life. So I did those two gigs, and I met everybody. I met all four hundred or five hundred kids or whatever it was, mm-hmm. and took pictures with everybody and shook hands and felt like. Um, and, and they were saying, come back. We want to see you again. And then when you meet somebody and it was that whole thing of like, now you can look somebody in the eye. Oh, they're a real person. So I like their comedy. And now I, I like this guy. So I found that it was it was working right away. And while all of those other comics were, you know, in the back, you know, doing whatever they were doing, I, I was like, okay, so I'm also setting my own, uh, I'm setting a precedent for myself 
even off stage, which is like, hey, I have a unique performance and then I have a unique way of corresponding with people. Well, nowadays, comedians do that through podcasts. Sure. They have a podcast and then people feel like they get to know who the comedian Absolutely. is and then they become fans. And then when that comedian comes to their town, then it's like, oh, I know you. I'll, I'll come see your show. Yeah. Whereas when you were doing this. There wasn't even – did you even have an online presence? When was the first time you were online? Well, I did because – DaneCook.com or whatever you yeah. had. What did you have? Yeah, DaneCook.com, like 2002 or three. I got my first website. cost me $35,000. I had $40,000 to my name, and I spent all of it on a website. My manager was like bonkers miffed. Now, of course, people in 2019 are listening going – I thought you can get a website for free, or I thought you can get a website for 20 bucks. If you wanted a flash website that was dynamic, I wanted Lenny Kravitz's website. Back then, it was, it was awesome. It was, in, it was like interactive. Mm-hmm. And so I called that company. I, I found the website, called that company, and they gave me this quote, and I was like, I, I need it. I said, this is the, the very first step in, I, I knew. I, I'll tell you something right now. I'm not a soothsayer, Sean, okay. but I knew. I said, this is my ticket. I guarantee this is going to work, that I'm going to be able to meet people faster, quicker, more efficiently, and get my comedy around with this new digital thing. So, so you already had the half hour on Comedy Central. The, the half hour on Comedy Central. Came out in like 2000. With the website, with Napster, which I was posting on at the time, and doing these meet and greets. Did you do Napster before the website? I, it was all kind of happening okay. right around the same time. Okay. But what it was happening was I felt like I was... Um, uh, it, there was just another generation of comedians that were starting to have their breakout moments, and this was when I needed to capitalize. So I put everything I had into into all day, every day. I would do. By the way, people are like, "Why don't you do a podcast?" I I did one for about eight years before they were called podcasts. I would do a uh, I would do a rant mm-hmm. into the mic. 40 minutes, just, you know, what's happening in my day, and I'd upload it to something that was called the Jukebox, the Voice of Doom, I called it, the Voice of Doom Jukebox, and I did that for many, many years, so I, I think I was one of the first podcasts and built, again, just like it's working successfully for great comedians today, I, I built it by rapport. But back then, how, you didn't have all that technology, so how are you actually physically doing it? I, I would rant into a microphone, but then... Yeah, just the computer mic that was on my Dell computer at the time. Mm-hmm. I would just record and, and put it up directly in this thing that they built for me, a jukebox, where he's like, hey, you can record anything you want if you mm-hmm. want to do a message. So at first it was could just... Could you edit this, it too or no? Um, I don't think... I, I think I could. Yeah, I think I could do whatever on my own computer before I sent it to my web guy. Okay. And he would he would upload it. Um, but it had like a pull-down menu and you could be like, oh, Monday's rant and Wednesday's rant. And I would just get on there when in the middle of the night and just talk about stuff that I was seeing or on the news or or whatever and it was amazing it was a lot of fun but you so I'm guessing you didn't have a set schedule then it was just whenever whenever the moment it, it yeah it was not set it was not set it was just uh you know and I'd keep it up there so it wasn't like if you missed it you missed it uh, right. you know you could I had archives I had the whole thing it was it was a pretty dope site for a lot of years did you have uh, I met Lenny Kravitz and even he was like hey man your website's great <laughs> <laughs> what other way did you have a message board I did. also okay yeah. so people could interact with each other yeah. that was at a time there. when message boards were wonderful and like yeah. really a place that could inspire hope 
<laughs> it really was a whole different pre Reddit. Pre Reddit. I, I tell people. I go. I said. I I was fortunate enough to come up at the time where the internet for a good five year run was a blast. It was the Wild West, that, yeah. and it was so fun. And it was more encouraging to artists than it is today, which is now it's it's so disparaging for so many artists. Yeah, I'll, I want to get in, into that in a moment as well as the, like your place in it. But the whole the whole MySpace thing, what exactly happened? Like you became the first MySpace. Star. Okay. <laughs> Saying it now, it sounds like well, only because if, only because the kids listening today don't know what MySpace is. But it's it's Facebook before Facebook became Facebook, and now everybody hates Facebook. But it was the but first in, Facebook. But in two thousand five, MySpace was the was hub. The it was a place for friends. No, it was a place for friends. A no, place like, for a place <laughs> for friends. Yeah, but it was a hub. It was um, a me- it was a it was a mall. It was a meeting point. It was another mall that I wanted to hang out in. And you accumulated over two million, which was like the top. Yeah, like five time. six million total. And I don't know, like, what did you exactly do the week that Retaliation came out? Yes. Did you have a a, a plan? Like the this putting the flyers on the cars of the Burlington yeah. Mall, but on MySpace kind of plan. I did, and the 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 okay. So I knew Harmful. Harmful. I had sold out of my trunk for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Then Jack Vaughn at Comedy Central. They put a comedy division. He comes to me and says, "Love the album. Do you want a record deal? And we'll put that album out as your first album. Great. How many copies do you think I'll sell?" Comedy Central tells me. You're not going to sell more than 8,000 copies. I said, really? I think it's going to be more. They said, comedy albums are dead. The comedy album's dead. It's a promotional item. Uh-huh. So I said, okay, well, give me a better deal then if I'm not going to sell much. Ding. So that was smart. And they gave me a great deal. Uh-huh. And then the first album came out. And it sold like 87,000 units, I think, like right off, you know, uh, Strawberries Records and Tapes and all these Tower places. Records. Right? Tower Records. Yeah. and HMV and all that. So... The buildup and knowing people were passing harmful around, and then I'm out there doing gigs, and I'm hearing the feedback from people through email and AOL Instant Messenger and all that stuff. I knew when Retaliation was coming out that I just had to let everybody know because I thought of my fans as my street team, and I shared my successes with them. I made sure they felt like we are doing this. We are making this you know, go to the next level. And so when retaliation came out, I said, I, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to sell a hundred thousand copies in the first, you know, 10 days with one click, one click on MySpace, the album's out, tell everybody. And then that's it. One click on MySpace sold out Madison Square Garden and Boston Garden. One click. I didn't spend a dime in promotion. But it also wasn't. So if I'm hearing you correctly, yeah. because nowadays with social media, People will pimp out, and I'm sorry for using the word pimp, but people, comedians will promote their product. They'll say pre-order on Amazon, pre-order, and they'll put the pre-order messages out for weeks yeah. on social media yeah. to try no. to get to try to try get on the bestseller list. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't uh, subscribe to that. I subscribe to what uh, uh, You're like, well, I mean, Electronic what? Arts just released uh, Apex Legends uh-huh. uh, Battle Royale game didn't tell anybody it's just on there makers of titanfall to me that's smarter it's like just find the core fans Mm -hmm. and let them bring people in i think that's better than trying to promote yourself i know i know everything's advertising and you gotta have movie trailers yeah it makes sense but i think there's a certain uh 
time and part where you're giving too much away for nothing and you got to keep some of that mystery and excitement. But at that moment in July of 2005, yep. Were you savvy enough about the the metrics to know how many people would respond to one click versus say multiple yeah multiple teases yeah because I had um, access to my admin and analytics through my website mm-hmm. so I could see how many women in Wisconsin how many guys in Maine I knew all my fans gender to the T I could go in and look specifically at names and mm-hmm. where. Towns, so I I knew how I'm, obsessive were you about checking those I stats? I wouldn't say obsessive. I just loved it. <laughs> I loved it. You know, Sean, I don't. <laughs> I wouldn't say I loved alcohol. I, I wouldn't say I obsessed <laughs> with alcohol. I just loved drinking it every day for twelve I, years. I loved. It. I had this because uh, I, I maybe because I've never drank or, or done drugs. <laughs> I spent all my time. That my, was your addiction. That was my thing. Uh-huh. But it wasn't. Uh, it, it it didn't feel like an addiction. It felt like a it person. Only, it was only harmful if swallowed. That it felt like a person that was uh, in a in a in a place where I could actually activate people um, to to be enthused enough to support me. And and I always tell people this, and this is really the the most critical part. All that hype with um, social media or whatever it is, whether it's yesterday or, or today or tomorrow, it doesn't matter if you're not funny. And I was at the funniest point that a comic of my age and in my demo could be. I was at the top of my game. I knew it. And I knew if I can get 10,000 people into a room somehow, I guarantee they're going to come back again. They'll leave and come back mm-hmm. again because I knew the show and the, and the caliber of the show. And that's what it's the most important thing. Don't push yourself. Don't advertise if you're lackluster. All the hype in the world, okay, you're going to get the attention, and then what happens? Look at all these YouTuber-type stars. They get this moment of, like, millions and millions and millions, and then everybody goes, what do you got next? And they have nothing because mm-hmm. they haven't built up, like, a a, a, a repertoire mm-hmm. or, or abilities. Mm-hmm. And so you want to be a flash in the pan? Hype yourself to death. If you want to be somebody with longevity, get a podcast, start writing, blog, or whatever it is that, that – lets people know more about what's going on here in your heart as a performer and in your head as a as a human being for tourgasm i know there was a there was a sales pitch you had to make to hbo for that too what did you present to them tourgasm actually was it's funny jeff ross i did his podcast last night and he was just ripping on me so hard for (laughs) for there's 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 definitely things in retrospect or Uh, even at the time to rip on it let me tell you something there's an edited version of that where i'm ripping on it so (laughs) we knew i knew that it was in some ways i mean gary was right to quit (laughs) i don't want i don't want to say it was uh i don't want to say it was um here's what happened I didn't make Torgasm as an HBO series. I was shooting webisodes from my website for free. Okay. So I went to Chris Albrecht, who was the head of HBO at the time. He had offered me Vicious Circle. And I'm in his office with uh, the edited DVDs I'm putting together for my website. I'm going to upload it in two days. He goes, what else are you working on? I said, oh, I got these DVDs. I got to go upload um, behind the scenes stuff of, of this tour for my website. He goes, pop one in. Let me see it. We watch it for like 30 minutes. He turns to me. He goes, I'm going to buy this. He said, this is the promotional tool. Will you, can you cut these into episodes? Uh, I'm going to be, lead up to I'm gonna be very honest right here and now. I knew I couldn't cut episodes of that. I knew it wasn't dramatic or interesting enough and in that we didn't have all the dark corners mm-hmm. 
You know, I, I knew that it wasn't supposed to be that. No, but we're supposed to kill you with kindness. We that was, I'm Jay, sorry. That was Jay Davis's. Bit. <laughs> I'm sorry. But we. Uh, I know you just went through this with Jeff. So I'm we sorry. we got into no, please. It, it, he brought the anvil down on me, but it was it was uh, delightful. Um, but we we finished it. We and we edited something that we thought at least catered to the comedy side of things, and maybe less about the true dynamic of what it is to be a, a performer. Right, but it was just meant to be a. Bonus for the fans. A, it was a goof. Yeah, it was a goof. It, 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 and, and if you said to me today, now, would you have put that on as a show? No. So, you know, as as what happens with someone who becomes huge in the zeitgeist, you end up getting the backlash and the haters. You end up getting in all of pop culture. I know you've, you know, you were on like Mad Magazine. Yeah. You're Family Guy. You know, some loved of, it. Some of, loved it. Some I loved was, the hazing. All of it. I loved it. There was not any part of it except for when it got really personal and my family got involved mm-hmm. and, and my fans felt felt involved when it was about me. Um, I don't think people know how self-deprecating I really am and how I can take the piss out of myself at any given moment. They, so, should, they should watch Waiting. So for <laughs> Why? What do you mean? No, because the I feel like I feel like that character you play is like self self deprecating. I feel like that's uh, that's like you. You're more like raw. Oh yeah, I, that was a character though. That's definitely yeah. But it's also like Floyd was the guy that I worked with when I was younger at a nursing home. I was a dietary aide, but behind the scenes him. stories for another day. Um, so, but but you know, you go from wanting all the attention to getting more attention than you ever possibly right. could have imagined, right? Because, Did it become too much? Well, because what happens is you know that once you become um, kind of everybody's, then this ha- thing happens. And I've been doing this whole routine about it, like what what America does and how we mm-hmm. how we build somebody and right. how we destroy somebody. Yeah. And I mean, Kevin Hart's going through a little bit of that right now. Yeah, everybody is. Yeah. I mean, and everybody's going through it in cycles like Tiffany Haddish. Everybody's going mm-hmm. through it. Amy Schumer. Everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. I get, I'm not going to drop drop names, but people call me and they're like, now I get it. Now I know what you were experiencing from this side of it. Yeah. And so now I'm in like a nice little club with people that have been through the ringer, so to speak. Um, but it just goes with it. And and, and I'm not going to lie to you, man. I did, didn't, you, did you roast Sebastian at all for, for copping some of your moves? I didn't. Uh, no, he, I don't think he copped any of my You think he copped my moves? No, just the, the kicks and the, not the jokes, but the, no. the actual... No, Sebastian's always been a, a, a physical guy. It's not like something. I mean, suddenly- playful hazing. I don't mean like. I don't mean like what happened I'm, with you. I'm the first person. <laughs> I that, don't mean like the Louis. Have- <laughs> I, I I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I, I like to bust chops too. But no, I know I've seen Sebastian for a lot of years, and Sebastian did it. You know, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't see a oh, okay a parallel. All right. Um. So where do you see yourself now in the zeitgeist? So last year I went out and I did uh, like 40 dates mm-hmm. last year. And the whole point was, let me just go out there and let me see what the word of mouth is to sell out shows without me promoting it, without a click of anything. I barely mm-hmm. talked about it. And I started showing up at these venues, mm-hmm. made the ticket price, you know, real reasonable, like 30 bucks and 4,000 people showing up, 5,000 people, you know, some were smaller, but 1,500, 2,000 selling out everywhere. And when Live Nation finally called and was like, this this is like happening again. Um, you know, do you want to do a full-fledged tour? I was like, if we're going to do it, let's let's do it 
all out. Let's mm-hmm. do the big theaters and Radio City and the Wang in, yeah. in Boston. Um, and so it took me a, it took me a little bit of time last year to finally really feel like, hey, you know what? This is I'm in the right place as a. I wanted the act to be in a place, Sean, where it was this new evolution of where I'm at in my life, more introspective, more about things that have happened to me and and around me. But, but, but I I would never have gone back out on the road if I didn't think I could get the LPMs, the last per minute. Mm -hmm. I wanted the same level of humor and show, but I wanted to be able to plant my feet on the ground and, and sell it from the eyes if I needed to and talk from the heart. Um, and that's where my st- stand-up is now. It's still, you know, full-fledged, and I've got great energy. I'm not, I'm not throwing myself uh, across the stage anymore and landing on my hip. Um, but it's still the enthusiasm with um, the introspection, which is what I always wanted to be as a performer. It's what I watched Carlin do. He could be goofy. He could talk about farts. He could talk about jerking off. And then suddenly he could be poignant and real and get quiet. And then he used sound effects. And he wasn't afraid to modulate his voice. He did everything that I would have hoped to become. And it took you know 25 years to finally go oh now i'm really getting good like now i'm now i'm starting to really get good why i've got all the tools i went through all that drama i went through my hazing i made it through all that i'm still out here i'm still in the game and then i'm going oh now i can bring all that and i'm happy i'm happy that there was a dark period in my life right in the middle of that after 2005 yeah and then it got you had, you had you had the backlash you had the loss of your parents it's crazy you my brother your brother your half brother yeah, embezzling money insane. And- Louis, you know, having a comic lie and, and say that you, it just like, it, somebody that everybody respected too, it was just bonkers. It was so many things that were. So, since you brought it up, the fact that you, that you partook in the episode of Louis, yeah. where he talked, where he writes, he wrote how it all goes down, and you, but you agreed to participate in yeah. that. Did you feel like that was closure? At the time, I felt like it was something I needed to do, and I knew Louis also wanted to do because mm-hmm. it had gotten so out of control. And 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 I can say this now: uh, I, I didn't uh, I didn't punch back back then because it's just not in my nature. But I knew that he regretted doing that to me. I knew it because he started backtracking, and you could find articles where slowly he was backpedaling. I don't know if he took. I don't think he. Mm-hmm. And then when I sat with him and said, "Dude, we both have a, a Steve Martin bit of naming your kids like you fucking did the same thing." Mm-hmm. I knew he was he was bitter at that time. Lucky Lewis canceled. Retaliation just hit, and he was mad. And I knew that he took it out on me. Uh, I forgave him for it. I was ready to move on when he wrote the episode. I read it. I didn't agree with everything on the page. I said, I'd say this differently. That's really not me. Mm-hmm. But the overall theme, I knew I can I can put my truth into this moment, look him in the eyes in these scenes. I can I can get my point across. And get your point across to the yeah. viewers. So, yeah. So when I did that, it it, it felt like I was get, taking a boot off my neck mm-hmm. that had unfortunately been there as a, as a comedian. Uh, unnecessarily and unwarranted, but it was part of is what that, I needed to do. Is that a conversation you've had with Amy Schumer? Because I know Amy no. does that as part of her backlash. I'm not. I'm not close with Amy okay. in that way. Like we've always been really good acquaintances in the clubs and had chats. But I don't. I, I wish I could uh, reach out and talk to her. But I'm not in her inner circle. Okay. Um, do you feel? You know, you you said you right before this tour, you went out and did dates without 
doing the the hype and the promotion. Do you feel like as a comedian in 2019 that you have to rely on social media? No. No, because look at all the comics that go out and are um, renowned and don't barely ever anything online, Chappelle's or you know even Chris Rock. I know he's got a Twitter, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't think it's necessary. I think that it comes back to a simple thing, and it's why I did the tour last year. If it's funny first, dominoes can fall after that. So all the hype and whatever people think they know about me or whatever, none of that matters. None of that matters. The same way nothing matters once you're on stage. If that first joke is flat and a dud, the rest of the set, it's like, man, you better figure something out because they'll give you the applause and stand, but do the first joke. And if it's lame, then show's over or, you know, about to be over. Mm -hmm. So funny again, first was last year of me doing what I did when I was a kid, taking apart the computer, fixing things that weren't broken to try to put it back together in a new way. And so last year was me going out there and going, it's just funny. Is it funny across the board, across the country and all these like, you know, unusual places, places that I haven't performed. And once I, I got that, um, I reached out to a lot of, uh, mentors and friends and people that have been doing comedy for, you know, 50, 60 years and telling me, okay, this is like part of the rebuilding. This is part of the next um, phase, act two of your life and career um, at 46 years old, having started at 19. Um, and it come back to that simple philosophy. If it's funny, then share it. Just get it back out there Let and let the fans cultivate the the word of mouth and all that. Don't try to push it and, until it's time to be pushed because you're promoting a special or something like that. So 25, almost 30 years later, Yeah. do you feel like you still have something to prove? To myself, yeah, to myself. When I watched the Gary Shandling documentary, it, uh, it, it, I've watched it a couple of times, but it um, the whole idea of – I did a lot of writing. I've always kept a, you know random journals, mm-hmm. and some of them are really stark. Some of them are like uh, hard to read because I was in such uh, dark – places in in my in my mind as a as a person and nobody knew I was struggling with that either um but when I watched that documentary and he was so introspective yeah um and knowing how I like to conversate in in my regular life away from comedy and and being more um philosophical about things and and how I how I take things apart still in my life and try to put them back together for now friends and people that I mentor in a way that's constructive. Um, just all these elements and seeing that, that special, I felt like I think I could have my best run now. I think that, uh, it's because it's not about like being the next big shiny thing that suddenly is just like popular cause he's popular. I guess, I guess we're supposed to all love him. Mm-hmm. Now it's on my own laurels. And now it's without all that. So doing it kind of, I guess, again, um, it feels it feels for me like now it's more organic than it even was when it all happened because I wasn't a complete person when it all happened. Right. And I'm a complete person now. Well, I'm glad uh, I'm glad you're sitting in front of me, complete person, <laughs> Dane Cook. Thank you very much. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, man. Thanks for telling it like it is. Of course. <laughs> Thanks. You got it. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brzell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. 
please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first.